Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. So battered was the figure that two cyclists encountered that it didn't even occur to them straight away that the form they were seeing might be human. And at first they said it looked like a scarecrow had been tied to the fence. Instead, the lifeless, savagely beaten body of 21-year-old Matthew Shepard, a University of Wyoming freshman, a gay man, barely alive tonight, in a coma, brain damaged, and on life support. That was a clip from a national news report that ran after Matthew Shepard was found technically still alive in the early morning hours of October 8, 1998. The report aired before Shepard's family had to make the gut-wrenching decision to remove him from life support, a call they made after he languished comatose in a hospital for four days with no chance of surviving. An autopsy found Matthew had been hit 18 times in the head, crushing his brain stem, plus defensive bruises on the back of his hands and more contusions near his groin, where he had apparently been repeatedly kicked. Chances are you know at least the broad strokes of this story. It's one of the more recent cases we've explored on the show, and its impact is undeniable. Then-President Bill Clinton denounced the attack, which drew international attention to hate crime legislation. Matthew Shepard's funeral became the target for a bigoted hate group masquerading as a church, which I won't name here, as well as a rallying cry for those advocating LGBTQ rights. All of that's unquestioned. But I'll also make a point to explore more recent headlines that claim a quote-unquote different truth is emerging in the decades since Matthew's death and examine whether those questionable claims really even matter. If you're like me, you remember this case making headlines. I was just shy of Matthew's age when news reporters recounted in gruesome detail the extent of his horrific injuries. A new high school graduate, I had moved from Bettendorf, Iowa, to a college town in the Midwest that maybe was a little more progressive than Matthew's college town of Laramie, home to the University of Wyoming. But I felt a fish-out-of-water kinship when I heard his story, not to mention an uncomfortable realization that the world is not only full of shitty people, but that young adults out on their own are particularly vulnerable prey. That's probably as much as I had in common with Matthew Shepard, though that much, and just being an empathetic human being, period, was always enough to make hearing what happened to him exceedingly uncomfortable. I'll admit that it was only in researching this episode that I finally learned the extent of the damage done to him. For fellow sensitive souls out there, I won't be gratuitous here, but I will share as much as is needed to make sure it's clear why this case resonated as strongly as it did. 
Matthew Shepard was the firstborn child to Judy Peck and Dennis Shepard, the latter of whom was born in Nebraska but moved during high school to Wyoming, where the couple met. The two were married May 5, 1973 in Laramie, Wyoming, while Judy was still a junior majoring in secondary education. Straight out of college, Dennis had landed a state job with OSHA. A wedding photo ran in the Casper Star Tribune, showing Dennis with 70s-style shaggy hair beaming at his bride. Matthew came December 1, 1976. Here are his parents, Judy and Dennis, speaking to a reporter, followed by his friend, Jim Osborne. When he was young, he always cared about the other kids. He was very empathetic. He could tell when somebody was down. He was always there to make them feel better. Matt had this incredible smile that would just light up when you talked to him. And it, it was like his whole body was smiling at you. Matthew's brother Logan came in 1981. Judy and Dennis raised both boys as members of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Casper, Wyoming, where they often served as acolytes. Later, Judy would say, Matt loved the church so much. He especially liked the pomp and circumstance, she said. He loved the theatrical elements. He loved, too, that he felt welcome there, which became increasingly important to him as he grew older and realized he was gay. While some branches of Christianity deemed same-sex relations an affront to God, the Episcopal Church had adopted resolutions in 1976 stating that, quote, homosexual persons are children of God who have a full and equal claim with all other persons of the love, acceptance, and pastoral concern and care of the church, end quote. In 1988, in response to the AIDS crisis, the church formed the National Episcopal AIDS Coalition to provide education and support for HIV and AIDS ministries. Another six years after that, the church's canons were amended to prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation. Now, I got all of this from EpiscopalChurch.org because I personally seem to be allergic to theology and have always had to look this stuff up. I'm not the type of person who would remember offhand, for example, that the Episcopal Church calls itself Protestant yet Catholic because it retains so many of the same practices. Anyway, today's language all sounded so inclusive that I admit I wondered if it was a bit of revisionist history. Anti-gay sentiment was crazy pronounced in the 1970s, after all, and then there was the gay panic of the 80s. So I decided to look up contemporary news stories to see if maybe things weren't as kumbaya as the website today makes it sound. That's how I learned that the issue literally divided the church in the era, prompting a number of Episcopalians to leave the denomination. Here's one 1988 headline. Protestants grapple with sexuality dilemma. A paragraph from the story reads, quote, Part of the struggle for both Episcopalians and Methodists is whether the Bible condemns homosexual behavior. Some say it does. Others say the Bible doesn't address a monogamous homosexual relationship. Another issue is whether homosexuality is genetically based or socially learned, end quote. In a separate story headlined, Rector Says Homosexuals Should Be Treated with Compassion, the Reverend Bertner Ulrich made clear his position that people were born gay and that their love wasn't sinful. 
Matthew's church, and more importantly, his parents, subscribed to this thinking, which had to help him feel comfortable as he grew into a sports-averse, theater-loving young man who liked other men. Coming out to his parents was apparently a non-event. The elder shepherd's only misgivings were centered around their worries that life would be harder for Matthew as a gay person. They tried to teach him to be resilient and self-protective, especially in Wyoming, where not everyone was as welcoming. From a 2020 broadcast. It happened in the western town of Laramie, Wyoming, the kind of place where it's okay to be gay as long as you keep it quiet. Uh, The epitome of don't ask, don't tell. Walt Bolden is one of Laramie's gay residents. You would never go anywhere in Wyoming and hold hands. Uh, You would never go on a dance floor and dance with your partner. Uh, you would be careful how you walked. But Matthew didn't live exclusively in Wyoming. In fact, he spent his last two years of high school attending a boarding school in Lugano, Switzerland, because his father got a job in Saudi Arabia and there weren't American high schools in Saudi Arabia at the time. As part of his study abroad experience, Matthew traveled throughout Europe and beyond. During his senior year, he and some friends went to Morocco, where he told his parents he endured a vicious assault. A group of men robbed Matthew and raped him as many as six times, leaving him not just physically violated, but traumatized. His personality was said to have changed in the aftermath of the attack. He battled depression and suffered panic attacks. Clearly, this was a pivotal point in Matthew's life. The sense of security he'd grown up with in his family structure and in his church had been shattered. After the attack in Morocco, he finished his overseas schooling and then returned to the U.S. to attend college and set about trying to find new footing. Though that wouldn't prove to be easy. He started in North Carolina, first attending Catawba College, a private university founded in 1851 by the North Carolina Classis of the Reformed Church in Newton. While there, he started therapy to treat the depression that had become more pronounced in the aftermath of his assault. Now, whether this next part is true or not is debated among people who knew Matthew, but at least one of his circa mid-90s boyfriends said that Matthew also began self-medicating with crystal meth, a highly addictive stimulant that you'll be cured from ever wanting to try if you just Google the phrase meth mouth. In recent years, a book has posited, and some tabloid stories have parroted, a theory that Matthew wasn't just a meth user, but a dealer. That's largely based on this one supposed boyfriend's account who has said things like, I was worried about him. I was um, concerned about Matt. And of course, you know, when I talked to Matt about it, he would just say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, I got it under control. By that time, after you're so far into it, I mean... Matt didn't have no other way out of it. He couldn't just stop because the people wouldn't stop. And this telling of things, or really retelling of things, Matthew's death was supposedly tied with his drug use and possibly dealing. There are some issues I have with these quote-unquote revelations that I'll delve into later. For now, what's important to know is that Matthew's experience in Morocco was clearly traumatizing for him and difficult to deal with. His mother, Judy, has told reporters that he seemed lost afterward, like he couldn't find his footing. After a brief time in North Carolina, he moved to Denver, where he still seemed unmoored, but at least settled enough that he could formulate a new plan. 
He left Colorado to return to Wyoming, specifically Laramie, to attend the University of Wyoming, where both his parents had gone. According to the BBC, his mother Judy said that come 1998, quote, we just felt like he was finally coming around to being himself again, end quote. Walt Bolton again. He, he liked it here. He, he talked about how comfortable it was and that this really was him. I mean, the, that small town, uh, you walk around town and people meet you eye to eye and they smile at you. And I mean, he loved that. And, and uh, he talked about how safe he felt here. That he felt so safe is one of the most heartbreaking elements of this case because he was anything but. While there's some debate about what precisely unfolded the night of October 6, 1998, what's known is this. 21-year-old Matthew went to a Laramie bar called the Fireside Lounge on East Custer Street. It was a longtime establishment in the area, staying in the same family since it opened in 1968. By 1998, it was owned by Nancy Mickelson, whose son also worked as a bartender there. The fateful night Matthew came in, he was served by another barkeep who served two other patrons that night as well, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. Like Matthew, both were 21 years old. Both were looking to score some crystal meth, or, short of that, money to buy it somewhere else. Nothing seemed to miss inside the bar when Matthew's path crossed those of McKinney and Henderson. Whatever conversation the trio had didn't raise any red flags for anyone watching, and when they left together that night, no one in the bar watching them had any sense that the night would end in one of the most gruesome, historically significant crimes of the 20th century, one that would cause reporters from around the world to descend on the small town of Laramie, home then to some 25,000 people. Some say what happened at this fence post in the cold and barren foothills of the Rockies was a hate crime. Others try to pass it off as just a robbery. The one thing that's clear is that what happened to Matthew Shepard was horribly brutal. That was ABC reporter John Quinones, who was in Laramie within days of the gruesome discovery. Now, the simpleton version of the headlines at the time summed up the attack this way. While the three men were in a Ford pickup truck, Matthew had maybe put his hand on McKinney's leg, prompting an eruption of homophobic rage in McKinney, who just so happened to have a very large, dirty, hairy-esque gun on him. McKinney viciously began pistol-whipping Matthew and also demanded his wallet, announcing that Matthew was being robbed. Matthew apparently handed over his wallet, but had an amount inside deemed disappointing to McKinney, supposedly about $30. McKinney kept beating him. Eventually, he and Henderson pulled the truck over, and Henderson helped McKinney drag Matthew's bloodied body to a fence where they tied the young man up, beat him about the head and groin some more, and then stole his shoes just in case he somehow managed to regain consciousness, untie himself, and try to flee to get help. That didn't happen. It couldn't. Matthew had been beaten comatose, then left outside on a chilly October night in Wyoming, where he wasn't found until some 18 hours later. Matthew's friends told reporters that they suspected he'd been attacked because he was gay, an allegation that certainly seemed supported by McKinney's girlfriend, Kristen Price, who said this. They did not intend to hurt him this badly. 
they just wanted to beat him up bad enough to teach him a lesson, not to come on to straight people and don't be aggressive about it anymore. Once a person tells you that they're straight, leave them alone. So that's how the story ended up being succinctly framed. Matthew came on to a couple of straight dudes and was mercilessly beaten to death for it. That, in turn, made Matthew the poster child for anti-LGBTQ hate and violence. That was a KTNV Channel 13 reporter. And it's true, Matthew did become a poster child for homophobia. As his high school friend, Michelle Hosway, said, Matt was a white, um, very small, um, non-threatening-looking boy next door. And um, people saw in him their own sons, uh, their friends, their neighbor. Um, So he touched a nerve across the country and I would say around the world. On the flip side of that, he also touched a nerve with the bigots of the world, the worst of which came to Laramie to spew venom. Content warning, the upcoming audio is surely upsetting to anyone with an ounce of decency. We hate everything God hates. God hates the sin of sodomy. He hates sin, and we hate sin, and we hate the sin of sodomy. Sodomy is is a more wicked crime and more corrupt sin against society than drugs, than alcohol, or literacy, because it's perversion. And we're here, we're here to take our stand, and it offends me. It personally offends me that we allow sodomy to run loose in this country. As much as I'd love not to give a platform to that kind of sentiment, it is an important part of the story because had those bigots not come to Laramie, Matthew's death might not have resonated as much as it did. With TV cameras rolling, these heartless jerks protested Matthew's funeral and said lovely things like, "This, this, He lived like he died. He died in shame. He lived in shame. He died in shame. And his parents ought to be ashamed. They ought to be ashamed to even identify him as a Christian. It's a shame to even have his funeral in this church house over here. They should have it at some queer bar somewhere or some queer meeting somewhere, not not over here in this this church house. Because this church house, regardless of it being Episcopal, a Baptist, a Methodist, whatever, represents true religion or Christianity. That's what it represents. And and we don't don't say that uh, that Sodomites is going to die and go to heaven when they die. Just like a drunk and a liar and a thief and a dishonest person. They don't get born again, they're going to die and go to hell. To shield people from those protesters, some of Matthew's friends had the clever idea of dressing up in white as angels with these oversized wings that served as a visual barrier between mourners and haters. That way, Matthew's friends and family wouldn't be subjected to the signs that earlier quoted fuckface held up, signs he apparently thought Jesus would approve of that said things like, Matt in hell and God hates. You can fill in the blank. What's odd about this case, by the way, is that while some debate today how much of a role Matthew's sexuality played in his death, there was no question about it at the time. It was as much the protesters' emphasis on Matthew's gayness that ensured the slain man's legacy would reverberate for decades to come and become a rallying cry for people demanding LGBTQ civil rights. Dissecting this case in hindsight as fairly as possible has admittedly been a little tricky because more than one thing can be true at a time. Matthew Shepard was an out gay man, and that, by his killer's own admissions, played a role in his vicious beating the night of October 6, 1998. 
Crystal meth also played a role. Now, I personally don't think it played the same role that one author, Stephen Jimenez, in a book called The Book of Matt, posited in 2018. Now, full disclosure, I didn't read this book, but the researcher I had helped me on this episode did. In it, some of the people Jimenez interviewed said that Matthew had been selling crystal meth and that the narrative of him being killed because he was gay was not only superficial, but it was downright erroneous. Matthew, he posited, was killed over drugs, not his sexuality. The concerns I have with Jimenez's conclusion mirror those opined by former executive director of Wyoming Equality, Sarah Burlingame, in an interview a few years ago with KGAB Radio. Uh, when Matthew was murdered, the FBI and these like forensic auditors came in and they went through every scrap of his apartment, of his uh, car. They didn't find any meth. There's no such thing as a meth dealer who doesn't have meth. There's no such thing. He wasn't a meth dealer. That wasn't who he was. We can look to our police reports. We can look to law enforcement who investigated this and say, hey, did you find this? No, they didn't. You know what investigators did say? They said Matthew's death was a hate crime. They not only had Kristen Price, McKinney's then-girlfriend, saying aloud that Matthew was beaten for being gay, but they had letters written by McKinney himself saying, quote, Being a very drunk homophobic, I flipped out and began to pistol-whip the f*** with my gun. Jimenez conveniently dismisses the statement of McKinney's as a calculated attempt to deflect attention from McKinney's own bisexuality. Then Jimenez asserts that McKinney and Shepard had not only met prior to their fireside lounge encounter, but that they'd had sex, too. I can't know if that's true, but I do want to point out a few things. First, crystal meth isn't something that's just recently been tied to Matthew's death. It was tied to it before the first trial got underway. It is why, for instance, that a toxicologist named Dr. Robert Lance testified on the first day of McKinney's trial that methamphetamine can, quote, cause violent outbursts, especially in chronic users, end quote. He was prepping the jury to grasp that McKinney's actions might have been fueled by the drug. The only part about meth that's asserted now that wasn't asserted before is that Matthew maybe dealt the drug, and for that, we have no solid evidence. Now, according to an ABC News report in 2004, McKinney's childhood was, quote, less than picture perfect. His father, a long-haul trucker, was rarely home and eventually divorced McKinney's mother, a nurse who later died as a result of a botched surgery. McKinney received a malpractice settlement of nearly $100,000 after his mother's death. He says he spent that money on things like cars and drugs. McKinney admits to reporter Elizabeth Vargas that by the time he was 18, he had a serious methamphetamine habit, end quote. Vargas's reporting was hailed by the New York Times as intellectually brave because it suggested that the motive to kill Matthew Shepard wasn't just because he was gay. It was because McKinney had been in the midst of a week-long bender, foregoing sleep and indulging in meth. His friend turned co-defendant, Russell Henderson, said that McKinney had been so hopped up, so full of obviously simmering rage, that he was afraid of him. He said he'd actually tried to keep McKinney liquored up that night at the Fireside Lounge, in part to keep him from doing anything rash. 
All of that had actually been reported prior, but it was overshadowed at the time, largely thanks to the headlines generated by the bigots belonging to a hate group disguised as a church. TV and print reporters only have so much space, so most of the stories ended up glossing over the nuances of Meth's role in the case and zeroed in on the bigger, broader discussions triggered by Matthew's death, namely homophobia in America and whether hate crime laws needed beefing up. As for the latter issue, plenty of people decided the answer was yes. Wyoming is known as the cowboy state. It's one of eight without a hate crime law. For the last five years here, state lawmakers have defeated attempts to legislate against hate, saying they didn't want to give preferential treatment to homosexuals. The hate group disguised as a church faction lodged their complaints, too. What more do you want from those many that killed him besides the death penalty? You cannot kill them twice, so you can pass all the more laws you want, and it will not change this situation. And when you start passing those hate crime laws, you've just said that it's worse to kill someone of the same sex than it is if they picked up a woman in the bar and done it. That's what your hate crime laws say. They're your pet political correctness of the month. That's all a hate crime law is. You, by promoting hate crime laws for this crime of robbery and murder, you said it's worse to kill someone than it is to kill someone else. It would take 11 years, but eventually a federal law would be passed titled the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009. Byrd was a black man whose brutal death at the hands of two white men who've since been executed had sickened the world a few months before Matthew's. Though the victims and situations were different, the cases were united in people's memories for the absolutely horrific ways they were killed ways that required their killers to dehumanize them in order to do what was done to them. Which, by the way, is what a hate crime prevention act is at least intended to deter. You might not agree that it's effective, but the point isn't to say that one murder is worse than another. It's to emphasize how important it is not to dehumanize other humans. It's one thing to take issue with a person's choices or stances in life. It's another entirely to let your disagreement with them transform them in your eyes into something less than. As history has shown us time and again, stripping away a person's humanity can lead to unspeakable acts of evil. While researching this case, I stumbled upon a lot of, well, actually, style arguments that the deeper I dug, the more I realized have been morphing over the years. One of those arguments that's gained steam more recently is by people who've started downplaying the role Matthew's sexuality played in his death, as though it's a zero-sum game, as if meth played any role and then Matthew being gay should have never been part of the narrative. But both things can be true. Sarah Burlingame again. If you're listening to this, raise your hand if someone in your life, your family or your job uh, has ever gotten involved with meth in Wyoming. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of hands are going to go up. Keep your hands up if they were murdered for it. I think all the hands just went down. The men responsible for Matthew's death had never beaten anyone else so badly that passersby mistook his body for a fallen scarecrow, but they did that to Matthew. In fact, just after Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson left Matthew tied to that fence, they got in a fight with some other men, and while they were violent with them, 
They didn't put cigarettes out on their bodies, tie them to a fence like an animal, and steal their shoes to make damn sure they couldn't run for help. But they did that to Matthew. It was that secondary scuffle that quickly tied McKinney and Henderson to Matthew's beating, by the way. Cops came and searched their truck, and they found McKinney's dirty, hairy pistol so caked in blood that they knew it must have done someone considerable damage. Much more than had been done in the secondary fight, during which a man had also been pistol-whipped, but not so badly to explain away all that blood. That victim, Jeremy Herrera, hit McKinney back with a heavy stick so hard that after police arrived, McKinney was transported to a local hospital. The same one, in fact, that Matthew would be transported to hours later. Inside the men's truck, investigators found a pair of bloodied shoes and a credit card bearing the name Matthew Shepard. When, the following morning, a body was found tethered to a fence, those findings in the truck are what helped identify him. He was so badly disfigured, his face surely didn't. After Matthew's parents, who were still in Saudi Arabia, got the phone call vaguely telling them that their son had been injured and that they should come as quickly as possible, they did. Judy Shepard told Oprah Winfrey that when she walked in his hospital room... I actually weren't even sure it was Matt. He was just so disfigured and swollen, stitches all over his face. Mm -hmm. And as we got closer, you can, you know, there's things you see as his braces, for one thing. You can't mistake those. And one eye was partially open and... uh, yeah, the twinkle of life that you expect to see wasn't really there. I don't know what we expected, but that, that is not what we expected. McKinney and Henderson denied having done anything to Matthew, and they recruited their girlfriends to provide them alibis that quickly fell through. Within days, they were arraigned on charges of kidnapping, robbery, and attempted first-degree murder, which would be upgraded to nix the attempted part a few days later when Matthew died. The girlfriends faced felony accessory charges. Henderson pleaded guilty to avoid trial and was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences in prison. In exchange, the death penalty was taken off the table. Nearly 20 years after the killing, Henderson told the Associated Press that he regretted the role he played. Matthew didn't deserve any of this, and I'm so, so ashamed that I was ever a part of this. He was a human being. He was a son. He was a brother. He was a friend. He had many people that loved him. And his his life mattered. And I I think about I think about Matthew every single day of my life. Henderson testified in McKinney's trial during which McKinney's lawyers strategized to use a gay panic defense, meaning they lobbied the judge in the case to let them argue that McKinney killed Matthew because he had had an uncontrollable, knee-jerk reaction to Matthew propositioning him. They said Matthew's sexual advance triggered in McKinney memories of traumatic, youthful homosexual episodes that, in turn, caused him to fly into a drug-induced rage that he couldn't control. And the story headlined, Hopes of Gay Panic Defense Dashed, the Associated Press reported that Judge Barton Voigt barred the approach because it was akin to temporary insanity or diminished capacity defenses, both of which were prohibited under Wyoming law. Now, this case took me longer to report out and write than most, 
because I spent a long time contemplating whether the recent headlines questioning the quote-unquote true motive behind Matthew's death really do have much bearing on the crime and its legacy. For what it's worth, I've decided that for me, the answer's no. All crimes are nuanced. Nothing can be explained in a single headline. And the bottom line is, while McKinney and Henderson might have had more than one motive for attacking Matthew that night, they themselves made his sexuality a big part of the story. Especially McKinney, a self-described homophobic whose lawyers tried to deploy a gay panic defense. Maybe someone would have been beaten and robbed that night, period. But Matthew being gay seemed to make the difference between him being treated like a human or another. And that's what's always made this case one of the most impactful crimes of the 20th century. McKinney was convicted by a jury and was expected to be sentenced to death. His plan to appeal was stopped short, however, by a deal made with prosecutors with the blessing of Matthew's parents. In exchange for not appealing, McKinney's life was spared. Like Henderson, he was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences. At McKinney's sentencing hearing, Dennis Shepard referred to Matthew as his firstborn son and his hero. He said he took comfort in knowing that Matthew wasn't alone tied to that fence. Not really, anyway. First he had the beautiful night sky and the same stars and moon we used to see through a telescope. Then he had the daylight and the sun to shine on him. And through it all, he was breathing in the scent of the pine trees from the snowy range. He heard the wind, the ever-present Wyoming wind, for the last time. He had one more friend with him. He had God. And I feel better knowing he wasn't alone. Matt's beating, hospitalization, and funeral focused worldwide attention on hate. Good is coming out of evil. People have said, enough is enough. I miss my son, but I am proud to be able to say that he was my son. Initially, Dennis and Matthew's mom, Judy, had spoken in favor of McKinney being executed for his crime. But something about that fate didn't sit right with them. After all, McKinney and Henderson were the exact same age as Matthew. Judy asked Dennis, what would his death accomplish? Doesn't this have to stop somewhere? I would like nothing better than to see you die, Mr. McKinney. However, this is the time to begin the healing process. To show mercy to someone who refused to show any mercy. Mr. McKinney. I am going to grant you life, as hard as it is to do so, because of Matthew. Every time you celebrate Christmas, a birthday, the 4th of July, remember that Matt isn't. Every time you wake up in your prison cell, remember you had the opportunity and the ability to stop your actions that night. You robbed me of something very precious, and I will never forgive you for that. McKinney, I give you life in the memory of someone who no longer lives. May you have a long life, and may you thank Matthew every day for it. Thank you very much. People began sending the shepherds money, which they didn't need or want for themselves, so they founded the Matthew Shepherd Foundation in their son's memory. 
The organization is meant to support LGBTQ people, specifically children and young adults, while promoting anti-violence and empathy. Still very much active today, its mission statement emphasizes how important it is that Matthew's story keep being told again and again. It reads in part, quote, We share his story and embody his vigor for civil rights to change the hearts and minds of others to accept everyone as they are, end quote. research the story, I had help from Justin Hayward-Lines, who relied on NPR, The Washington Blade, The Village Voice, Vanity Fair, The Casper Star Tribune, and The Book of Mad by Steve Jimenez. I also read contemporary news coverage, watched several documentaries, including one by FilmRise True Crime, and spent more time than usual stuck in my own head. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.